coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming turning point moment. Ahem. Yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. So if you're ready, say I'm ready. All right, here we go. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commit I love this, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Now this is a prophecy. This is an old No, we're still good. Is it just me? All right. Yeah. So this is a this is a prophecy about the the coming Messiah. All all the, all the Jewish believers of the day they 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 knew this. They memorized scripture copiously. They all had it in their head. They knew these words. And this is the words. This is the clues that they're using to hunt down who is the Messiah. This is the prophetic word. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government and its peace will never end. That line, his government will rest on his shoulders. It's a key factor in them identifying who would be the Messiah. Uh, is anyone, did anyone go to, grow up in church and go to youth, youth group? Anyone go to youth group? Any youth group kids in the house? I know we just did this at our, our youth ministry. We had one of those gift exchanges. Did it get violent, Jess? A little bit? Borderline? A little aggressive, right? A little aggressive. See, growing up at our youth group, things got, you know, at times it got a little aggressive. You know, people were wanting these prizes. We would always bring, it's like a $5 gift, and they would put everything in, and there'd be like, well, our youth group was, was quite, quite large. Like 80 people joined into like a living room, uh, just jammed in there with this like mound of gifts. And most people brought good gifts, but some people try and be funny, right? And that ruins it for everybody, because that means that there's somebody going home with literally the worst possible $5 gift of all time. It's like somebody is going home with like a fake $5 bill. You know, someone's doing that. Somebody's going home with like $5 worth of junk from the dollar store, like weird glasses on their eyes or something. Like something the worst. But for me, I always, I felt like this was a treasured time. This was a special time. You need to respect the gift exchange. And so I would always go, and, and near, near the end, I would go and get a box of, of hedgehogs. You know, but the knockoffs, not, not the Purdy's ones, because then I'd be over the limit. The cheap ones are just as good. Uh, they probably come from the same place, if we're being honest, uh, somewhere in China. So um, I would go and buy this box of hedgehogs, and, and I would strategically place it, wrap it, put it in the thing. we get our numbers, and you, you put your number, you could steal from people. You could do all that sort of thing. And I would strategically just wait and pick my own gift. Because the thing is, I know what I like. I know what I want. I'm guaranteed a good gift if I get my gift. There's no disappointment involved. So I would just play the game strategically to pick my own gift. I'd probably hide it out of view. That's a key to your success and strategy is hiding it out of view so people don't remember how amazing your gift was. And, and don't wrap it like too like over the top. Keep it pretty chill. You don't want people to think, man, this is an amazing gift. And if you're playing this strategy game, if a gift looks really amazing and is wrapped really, really well, probably a terrible gift if we're being honest. 
People are like, our gift is terrible, but I paid someone to wrap it really nicely. And it's all the strategy of the game, but you always end up, with, somebody always ends up with a gift that they do not want. Can I tell you that Jesus was the gift that everyone was expecting, but nobody wanted? Jesus was the gift that everybody was expecting, but that nobody wanted. The, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people of the day, they had memorized every portion of Scripture. They knew every, every prophecy. There's over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those. And the odds are so insane that when I was looking up the odds of one person fulfilling all of the promises and all of the prophecies, to do it again, the number was so big that there were so many zeros that I had to Google what it was called, but then I forgot to do it. So it's a hundred with a whole bunch of zeros after. Let's call it like one in a hundred billion or something. Like it's ridiculous the chance that somebody else could come and fulfill every single prophecy. So Jesus comes throughout his life. He fulfills everything. Every person had it memorized. But the thing that Jesus did that really rattled people is that he, though he fulfilled the words, he did it in a way that nobody expected. When he showed up and he's born a king, a triumphant entry, Instead of showing up in a palace or a mansion or an estate somewhere, he's born in a manger. That's confusing to people. Why are you born in a manger, Jesus? You're God. You shouldn't be there. No, I said I was going to be in Bethlehem. I'm in Bethlehem, all right? He showed up in a way that, that they were least expecting. That, that, that line in, in, verse, uh, in verse 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. This was a really key phrase. This was a stumbling block for the Jewish people. They were expecting a religious uh, king. They were expecting somebody who, who spoke like the religious elite of the day. They were expecting somebody who was privileged, who looked nice, who talked the same way that they did. He served in the Jewish councils the same way that he did. He, he hung out with the right people, said the right things. Basically, they're looking for a Pharisee who would rise and sit on a real, actual, physical throne and become a king with a crown. They wanted the same thing that their ancestors wanted when they begged God for a king. They wanted the real deal. They weren't interested in Jesus, king of my heart. They were interested in Jesus, king of the world, kingdom, liberate us from these Romans. They were ready for a rebellion. They were ready to establish their own kingdom. So when Jesus comes, and he comes in the most unlikely of manners, born in the strangest of places, doing the weirdest of things like hanging out with all the people that are supposed to be the worst people on the earth. He starts making people a little bit angry because he's the gift that everyone's waiting for, but he's not what they expected. He's not what they wanted. It's like on Christmas morning when you open up that big, beautiful, amazing thing, and it's not what you thought it was. My favorite Christmas story of all time. Uh, it's not my own story, it's my dad's story. Literally the single greatest Christmas story of all time. My dad and my uncle lived on an acreage, and they were hoping and praying, believing for a John Deere snowmobile. I mean, any young man, I think, in Alberta on an acreage is believing for some kind of snowmobile at Christmas. I mean, it's just, it's just like a rite of passage of growing up on an acreage in Alberta at Christmas time. You're wanting this snowmobile, and so, I mean... 
I think they were hoping. I think they were praying. I think they were speaking in tongues towards it. They were naming it. They were declaring. Whatever you got to do, they were positioning themselves. Hey, Dad, you know what would be amazing right now would be a brand new John Deere snowmobile. You know, if you can just casually drop what you're looking for into a conversation, then maybe people will, will pick it up. You know, and so so they were hoping for this snowmobile. And so my aunt, my Annie Carol, little girl at the time, she, she knows what they want. And so she said, I, I know what you got for Christmas. I know what you want, got for Christmas. Oh, okay. Well, then. Two smart young men think we're going to play a game. I'm going to ask you some questions. You're going to answer these questions honestly. And if you answer these questions... Everyone's going to be satisfied here. Two brothers, I'm assuming good cop, bad cop. <laughs> Can I get you a snack? Cookies? Milk? Are you feeling good? You feeling well? Tell me what it is! You know, it's like, you're good cop, bad cop. Interrogation mode, you're just trying to, to, to get, extract the information out, you know? Just, I mean, not Jack Bauer, because you, it's your sister and you want her to live. But uh, you want to get the information out. So, okay, uh, so, so my dad, Brian, asked Carol, so... Colorful? Like what? Yeah, it's color. Okay. Uh, well, just wondering what color it might be. Is it blue? No. Okay. Is it yellow? No. Oh, okay, great. Is it white? No. Is it green? Yes. <sighs> Calm down, Warren. Keep it, keep it. Be cool. It's green. It's great. She said it was great. Okay, okay. Does it fit in this room? No. Does it not fit in this room? Would it fit in the garage? Yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Is it is it big? Yeah, it's big. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, does it have wheels? Please tell me it has wheels. And she stops and she pauses. She thinks about it. And, of course, if you're anticipating a snowmobile, you're like, she's thinking about it because the wheels drive the track, and it's a trick question. And she looks at them with those big eyes. Yes. Woo! You know, you're like little boys getting excited at Christmas time. So Christmas Day comes, and, and they're ready. They, I mean, they were organizing their snowmobile gear, getting ready for the season, just going just gonna to crush it out on the acres, just getting ready to just have an amazing day, thinking about all their friends who are going to ride it and looking how amazing. Look how amazing I look coordinated in this snowsuit with this green and white John Deere thing. One more question, Carol. Did it have a white pinstripe? Yes. Oh, it is coming at Christmas. Christmas morning comes. They, they roll out. My grandpa rolls out the presents. They go outside to see this thing in the garage. And lo and behold, what is waiting there in the garage but a brand new ping pong table. <laughs> it's got wheels. It's green. It's white. It's big. It doesn't fit in the house. It's amazing. It's not what you were expecting. That's the worst. You get your hopes up. And I get it. The Jewish people were disappointed in the same way. Jesus was not what they anticipated. This little kid who's a know-it-all in temple at age of 12, it's the soon-coming king. I don't They were disappointed. You know what they were most disappointed in? I believe that they were most disappointed in the prospects of not seeing peace in their lifetime. 
They were looking for peace. They were looking for a land. He was supposed to bring in and usher a new era of peace that would not end. How's this, this boy, this man, this carpenter's son, how's this baby going to usher in an era of peace? You're telling me he's not going to have a kingdom. He's not going to sit on a throne. There's not going to be a place for our people to go and live. No, what are you talking about? The, someone from the line of David is going to sit on the throne. They're going to rule forever. We're going to live in peace. They were disappointed. They were waiting for peace on earth. Much in the same way that we're waiting for peace on earth. I don't know if you've paid attention to what's happening in Syria, in Aleppo. The heartbreaking tragedy that's happening all across this earth. And at Christmas time, we, we sing these songs and we recite these verses over like Luke chapter 2, verse 14 in the New King James. It says, glory to God in the highest. This is the angels proclaiming, showing up out of nowhere. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And we think about these, these verses, and we think about peace, goodwill, oh man, amazing. Jesus is coming, and he's bringing peace. And we think about these lines, and we try and reconcile why our lives are not filled with the kind of peace, why our world is not filled with the kind of peace that, that we seemingly have been promised. We look at the situation, we look at the civil wars, we look at the election down south and the unrest, and nation divided. We look at the Black Lives Matter movement. We look at all of these things and we go, how come this world is, is, is at war? It's, it's not peaceful. Can I tell you that peace on earth is only possible with peace in your heart? Peace is on earth is only possible with peace in your heart. That translation in the New King James is not bad, but I think the NIV got it better in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. It doesn't make as good of a song. It's a little wordy. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Today I want to talk about the process of I believe that Jesus has laid out for us a process of peace through his, his life, through, through his, his birth, through his, his, his coming, his incarnation here on this earth. And we can take and we can extract these ideas and these principles and this understanding and we can lift it straight out of the scripture, straight out of Jesus' life and we can drop it into our lives. And I think it will bring some context to what it means to truly have peace in our lives. Are you ready for this? Okay. Sheila's ready. This is why the 12 is always louder, because uh, Sheila is there. We're going to use uh, Matthew 2 as a backdrop, but we're going to kind of be bouncing around. The very first step in the process of peace, if you're ready, just one more time, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Oh, we're marginally ready. Okay. The first step in the process of peace, and this happens in your life and it happens in my life, is, is that we receive a promise. We receive a promise. Luke chapter 1 verse 28 to 30, 26, no, 28. Matt's going to help me out. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. There's that woman, that word, favor. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, because that's the real reaction that happens when an angel shows up in your bedroom at night. Confused and disturbed, okay? You think you're going to handle it well. You're not. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. 
Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Fire's just really putting off a lot of smoke today. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. There's the promise. The promise that every Israelite knew, that every Jew knew, the promise that this Messiah was coming. God shows up, and he speaks to this teenager who's engaged. He uh, said, don't worry, you're going to get pregnant. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Excuse me, Lord, I'm confused and disturbed because I'm not married as of yet. Uh, virgin birth here. And uh, the Lord says, yeah, I'll take care of that. Which is, again, a strange story when you really start to dig into it. But the Lord shows up and he delivers this promise. You're going to have a child and it's not going to make sense how it's going to happen, but you're going to have a kid. His name is going to be Jesus and he's going to rule forever. He's not just going to be a king for a lifetime. He's going to reign forever. Now our minds, when we hear these words, we, we make our own assumptions because we all live a life based on expectation and assumption. We hear those words and say, oh, I'm going to have a son. His name is Jesus. That's great. Um, He's going to rule forever, which means, oh, he's going to be king for a while. He's going to have kids and grandkids. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have this kingdom. It's going to be awesome. It's going to go for generation over generation over generation. No, no, no. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is just going to be king forever? Because he's going to be king of everyone, of everything. He kind of already is, but he's going to let everybody know. You receive a promise. Now, I don't know what the promise is that you've received, but all of us receive a promise at some point in our life. Hey, this is your destiny. This is your plan. This is your purpose. This is going to happen to you. You're going to move into this next stage. I, I, I've promised you this. And the Lord comes and, and he speaks to us all in his own unique way about certain areas of our lives. And he delivers a promise to us. It happens to everyone. What happens after the promise? is that we get proof of the promise. It's the next thing. Luke chapter 2. We'll go to verse 16. They hurried to the village, this is the shepherds, and they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story we're astonished. We go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. This is the wise men, the magi. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, I mean, we have to think about this from Mary's perspective, just for a moment, just to kind of bring it to life. You're engaged, you're young, and... Um, God told you that you're going to have the Messiah, and you're going to have it via virgin birth. You have to explain that to your family. You have to explain that to your fiancé's family, which doesn't go as well as it went with your family, which didn't go that well either. You go and stay with, like, a cousin because things are probably not great with home, and she's having John the Baptist, so that's crazy because that fetus is jumping all over, and I'm sure you can see that because he's rejoicing because Jesus is there. Then you have to travel by Bethlehem on a donkey, we think, even though Scripture is a little conflicted whether there's a donkey or not. She might have had to walk the whole way. 
So she's walking all the way to Bethlehem to find a nice hotel, which isn't a hotel, which is a manger. And she's questioning, I'm sure, on that entire journey, the validity of what is all going on. I mean, it's amazing that she got pregnant. And there's some proof there, but nobody believes her story anyway. I have to think that somewhere along her journey, she started to doubt the promise. That she starts to wrestle and struggle with that idea of the promise. God, you gave me this prompt. Yes, there's been some crazy stuff that's happened, but um, Lord, I didn't think you would end up with me in a barn with a goat in the corner that was, like, every time I went to push, the goat was also, you know? It's like, it's an amazing setting, and the moo, I think they all synchronized together, the moos, the sheep, meh, and, uh, you know, it's like, that's the nurse, it's like, keep pushing, so she's just, you know, that was Mary. Um, so, The promise comes, and you start to second-guess it because it's maybe not unfolding in the way that you anticipated. Listen, God, if you're giving me a miraculous child, shouldn't you give me something else besides just an unexplained pregnancy? Then she gets the proof. When the shepherds show up unannounced at a manger, saying that not just one, not two, not three, not four, a multitude of angels are singing in a field, They told them to come, and they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And Mary goes, oh, it wasn't all a dream. Because there was proof about the promise. Not from where she expected. Not what she anticipated. But proof came for the promise. I love Luke chapter 2, verse 19. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. She thought about the promise. She thought about the journey. She thought about the walk. She thought about the goats synchronizing with her pushing. She thought about she thought about the, the shepherds coming and hearing from angels. She goes, man, God is with me. Not just my son, but God is with me. She thought about them often. Then, I mean, scholars disagree. Maybe the wise men showed up that night. I don't generally believe that theory. Most likely a year later, these wise men show up. So she gets proof. She gets a promise. She gets some proof. But more time passes, and God's doubling down on the proof of his promise. And who shows up but some... Some magi, some some political elites. I mean, this is like, this is like uh, to, to put it in picture. This is literally like if uh, Justin Trudeau sent his chief of staff and all of his um, his 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 whole uh, political staff that anyone who received foreign dignitaries over to your house with the same gifts that he would give any other world leader. Somebody shows up, the limo pulls up. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, so we're here representing uh, the prime minister, and we're going to give you, we, we believe that the baby, we have reason to believe that the baby that you're holding in this house is actually the na- next great leader of this world. And uh, so we're going to give you all of the gifts that we would give a normal world leader. I mean, if somebody shows up into your cul-de-sac, again, there's three gifts, and we've extrapolated three wise men. There wasn't three wise men. There was a whole caravan because, like, let me tell you, like, 
these guys need some staff, okay? They're, they're hoity-toity. They don't get outside much. They're riding their camels. They got servants. They got the whole crew. And the other thing is they didn't just give, we believe, they didn't just give, like, here's one little tiny piece of gold. Here you go, pinch of little frankincense for you. A little bit of myrrh, you know, a little drop of oil. There you go. If they were giving this to a foreign dignitary, it would be camel after camel after camel. Your garage would be full. One side gold, little frankincense in the middle, little myrrh in the middle. Because this is the same gift that they give kings. They don't give kings like a pinch. Here's a flake. We're just going to flake you off a little flake of gold here. No, no, no. They give you the gift worthy of the position. They, they understood Jesus to be that literal soon coming king. They back up the truck. All the monies is at Jesus' house. <laughs> All the gold. You get some proof. But coming along with that proof comes some pressure. That's number three, some pressure. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. There it is. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. They were disturbed because the wise man showed up, because when you're coming into somebody else's territory you kind of have to let them know so the wise man political keen guys let the king know hey did you know the guy who's going to rule you forever is being born here king herod was deeply disturbed when he heard and he saw that these guys were tracking signs in stars that were leading them to a geographical location verse 16 to 18 matthew 2 verse 16 Talk amongst yourselves for a moment, Matthew 2, verse, there we go. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him because the wise men showed up, bring their gifts after they talked to Herod, and Herod said, hey, I want to come worship him too. Stop by here on your way out of town. The Lord spoke to the wise men and said, don't do that. Go another route. So Herod finds out, and he freaks out. He realized they had been outwitted, so he sends soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Jerusalem or Bethlehem who were two years old and under. He wipes out an entire demographic. Like, Bethlehem is the suburb of Jerusalem, the capital in the region. I mean, and not like a Spruce Grove suburb, like like a big suburb, like a lot of people. I don't know how many kids are under two years of age. Think about how many boys in Spruce Grove are two years in the age and younger. Herod wiped them all out because he wasn't taking any chances. Can I tell you that after the promise and after the proof, there always comes a season of pressure. There's always pressure. But God, you give me a promise and there's a dream. Why am I uh, facing opposition? Because when he gives you the promise, he always proves the promise. But you have to understand there's always a season of pressure that follows. If you're coming up if generally, if you're fulfilling the promise of God, a plan or a purpose for God on your life, generally you can find yourself confirmed in the fact that you're doing the right thing when you start to face some opposition, when you start to face some, some heat, when, when, when people are coming down on you, when the world is not right, it generally means you're moving in the right direction because everything else is conspiring against you to stop you. The process of peace includes pressure. We got promise, we got proof, we got pressure. But along with that pressure comes number four, the provision. The provision. 
The only way to escape the pressure was to leave the country. And guess who showed up with the gifts and the gold and the cash and the spices and the oil and everything that was necessary to make it through that pressure? Those wise men not only were proof, but they were providing the provision to accomplish the promise. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are some people that believe, and this is scholar talk, theologians, smarter people than I. There are many people that believe that the amount that was brought by the Magi was not just enough to make it to Egypt and back, because that's where they fled to, but that amount was possibly enough to finance the family because we know that uh, Joseph passed away probably sometime between the ages that Jesus was 14 to 20. But he had seven brothers and sisters. So it was enough to finance the family and then possibly to start Jesus' ministry because it never at any time did Jesus ever ask for money at any time. There's others that believe that it was just enough for Egypt. There's others that believe it was just a fleck of gold. But what I can tell you is that when God gives you a promise, when he sends the proof, that he always sends the provision. And it's always generally on just on the other side of the pressure. <laughs> the process of peace includes promise, proof, pressure, provision, and number five, patience. The worst one of all time. There is nothing worse on this earth than having patience. I want it right now. I want it immediately. I want it like yesterday. If I ordered it today, I wanted it 25 minutes ago before I ordered it. I want predictive ordering so that when I walk into a store, they just deliver exactly what I think I want. That's what I want. That's what I want in my life. But the process of peace always includes patience. They flee to Egypt. And then something happens in Matthew 2, verse 19. Angel appears, those pesky angels. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to kill you are dead. Do you have the next verse, Matt? I didn't put it in there. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. Sorry, verse 22. I should have included this. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, uh, I didn't practice that word. He was afraid to go there. (laughs) Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee, verse 23. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And this is what I was trying to get at. And this fulfilled what the prophets had said he will be called a Nazarene. Patience. They had to outlive the pressure. (laughs) And God created provision so that they could 
go and they could do that, but they had to await to fulfill the next process of the plan, to fulfill the destiny, to fulfill the next step, the next thing. They had to wait until Herod died. Sometimes you need to understand that on this journey towards fulfilling the call and the purpose that God has for you, on this on this journey to fulfilling the promise, there are seasons of patience where it seems like you're waiting. And can I tell you the truth? Guess what? You're waiting. You're waiting for just the right time. You're writing, waiting for just the right moment. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God will make everything beautiful in its own time. There's a right time. There's a right place. There's a right season. It may seem like your dream is being crushed because you're waiting, but is it possible that waiting was always a part of the plan? Is it possible that God was just rearranging just the right things so that when it was time for you to move back to the region, that not only would you go and fulfill the promise that he said that you would, but you were fulfilling somebody else's promise that it would be a sign. Just the right time. I call this the process of peace. Promise, proof, pressure, provision, patience. Why is that the process of peace? Because if we are aware... And if we understand that with every promise, there's always proof, there's always pressure, there's always provision, there's always patience, you can live in a state of peace because you know that God is going before you, that he's laid out the plan, that he's taking care of it, that the pressure was not a surprise. The pressure is just a part of the process. I love uh, Psalm chapter 23, verse 5. You know, everyone, this is the most peaceful psalm. Everyone loves it. People love it when they're dying, you know. We love it at every season of life. You know, you're going through a difficult time. Uh, I'm just going to read Psalm 23 because it just really calms me down. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a feast for me. That sounds amazing. I want a feast with Jesus in the presence of my enemies. Oh. You get free food. Amazing. With all of your enemies. Worst. <laughs> Hold on. This is like to celebrate me, right? Like, this is all about me, Jesus. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling peace. Yeah, I'm going to prepare a feast for you. Awesome. Party with all of your enemies. Oh. They're having a party in kids' church back there, by the way, if you can't hear them through the double insulated wall. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. How is it possible? First of all, again, I've talked about this before. Weird. If you have enemies in your life, let's deal with that. Um. But you can eat in the presence of your enemies. You can have a feast with Jesus. You can, you can do all these amazing theoretical, hypothetical, spiritual type things when you have peace in your heart because you cannot be shaken. You cannot be disturbed because you're with Jesus and that's all that matters. And Jesus has a plan and a purpose. And no matter who's sitting at that table, no matter what weapon is formed against me, no matter what pressure is coming, no matter if I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, I can be confident and, confident and I can be at peace and I can understand that it's all a part of the process is a part of the process of peace and I can stand here and I can say I'm with him I'm with Jesus you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies you honor me by anointing my head with oil my cup overflows with blessings I also like to think that Jesus you know when he says vengeance is mine I like to envision at this feast my cup overflowing with blessings, well, theirs is empty. Because <laughs> Jesus is like, yep, vengeance is mine. Here, let me just fill up your cup a little bit. It's going to overflow. 
but I'm vindictive. Verse 6, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. Now, this is where it gets awesome. We might as well get Jess and, and the team back up here so I can bring this thing in for a landing. Do we remember in Isaiah 9, verse 6, a part of the promise is that his name should be called Wonderful Counselor. Remember that part? No, and no one remembers that? Sheila remembers? See, this is why we need to have Sheila around. <laughs> Sheila remembers these things. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, this is where things start getting crazy. Jesus is, is known as Wonderful Counselor. Well, what does wonderful mean in the context of Scripture in the original language? Well, it just so happens that mean, that word wonderful just means extraordinary, but it also means hard to understand. It's hard to wrap your mind around. So his name is wonderful, meaning hard to... I'm going to need that again, Matt, sorry. It means wonderful, hard to understand, hard to wrap your mind around. But it also means counselor, one that you could exchange with, the one that you could consult with, one who divides a plan. But it also means, counselor, one who conspires. Yeah, conspire. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound good. Conspiring doesn't sound good. Why is Jesus called the heart to explain one who, one who conspires? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Except that we know that his goodness and his unfailing love are following me all the days of my life. So is it possible that if I walk with Jesus, if I consult with Jesus, if I talk with Jesus, if we devise a plan together, if I start walking towards the promise and I start living in peace in the midst of the pressure and I understand that the provision's on the way, is it possible that this entire time while I've been consulting with Jesus, my wonderful counselor, that he's conspiring, that his love and his unfailing mercy would follow me all the days of my life? Is it possible that he's conspiring, that his goodness is never going to let me down? His faithfulness is not going to stop running me down? That he's always going to walk with me? He's always going to talk with me? He's always going to be there? The whole conspiracy theory that your life is based on is actually not true. The world's not stacked up against you. The world is stacked up for you because Jesus is with you. But we have to stay on the course. We have to stay on the plan. We have to follow. We have to Go through the pressure seasons. It's possible that you have not fulfilled the promise or it has not yet been fulfilled because you keep avoiding the pressure. Or you keep trying to provide your own provision. Or that you're just jumping the gun a little bit. What if we could live at peace knowing that all I have to do is consult with my wonderful counselor who's conspiring good and perfect things for me. <laughs> and if I follow him, I can live at peace through the process. In every season, in every moment. You've been listening to The Engage Life, powered by Engage City Church. If you like what you heard, check out EngageChurch.ca.